Thank you, Leslie and Paul. Good to see you all here today. Trusting you have a good day. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll once again read the first 12 verses. A portion of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, dealing with the Beatitudes. Uh, Roman, I'm sorry, Matthew, <laughs> I was in Romans before Matthew for so many weeks, it just comes naturally. But Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin now reading at verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, and persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. May God add a special blessing to reading of his word, and let us just pause and bow in prayers before we begin our study together. Father God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the bountiful blessings of moisture which you're sending to us. Father, we also thank you for those that have gathered today that are interested in worshiping and praising you at a level that is a little bit more enhanced. Every time, every day that goes by, Father, opportunities for us to get to know you better. Father, we'll ask today as we again return to this passage of Scripture, literally Christ's inaugural address, as he unfolded kingdom language. He unfolded for people that it was a heart issue. He was an internalist. He wanted them to see from the very beginning, that he came to change hearts and lives. Father, we would ask that you would uh, clear our thoughts for these moments, that you would have all of us, that we would be open and receptive, Father, to the word. We would ask that the Holy Spirit would singularly and uh, exclusively be our teacher today. We would ask that the things that we're not able to understand normally, Father, that today you would allow us to see more of you so that you can conform us to the image of your Son. We thank you for what you're going to accomplish because it's in your power that we'll praise and honor and give you glory for it's in our good as well as we study and worship in the word. These things we ask now in Christ's name, amen. Well, we find ourselves in, uh, I believe it's the seventh attitude or the seventh characteristics, the seventh attribute that Christ lays out in how to be happy. And you think about the, the whole concept of Christ has been, uh, there's groups, I'm, a group I should say, a multitude that literally have, have canvassed following him and he has, he's met and they are seated with him seating on the side of the mountain and he's going to discuss for them how to be happy. And that usually is a well-attended sort of a service. If you can tell people how to be happy, everybody's of receptive hearing. And they were. There was a large mass of people, and he had set it up well because if in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, it describes for us that he was healing. He was healing them of diseases and all kinds of maladies. He was actually feeding them. He was giving them things that of a physical note were very much appreciated and things that they could 
they could literally see something from an external standpoint. So here he is. Now he's seated, and he's going to speak to them. And I'm not sure what they would have expected. It would probably be the same today. If Jesus was right here in front of you, how would he give you direction and instruction of how to be happy? And I'm sure there would have been things that would have been floating through their minds. This is going to be fantastic because this potentially could be the Messiah. This is the one that could lead us out from underneath Roman rule. This would be the time that the kingdom will come and we can't wait to see what Jesus is going to tell us. And his opening words are blessed are the humble. Oh my goodness, uh, did he get the wrong speech? Did he, did he, did he grab the wrong notes? Uh, this seems totally absurd to who we're looking for. And it continues. <laughs> and it goes on. And, and at the end, and about where we're at now, blessed are the peacemakers, you're wondering, my goodness sakes, how is this going to work out? He's not even addressing the problems that we have. But see, that was the thing Jesus really was addressing, the problems. He would be saying the same things to us today. Is we were seated here and Jesus would be giving his address to you. He would say exactly the same thing because he, he knew that we need to know that everything starts on the inside. If the heart is not changed... Nothing has changed. Today, our world is flipped upside down, not because of anything that's external. And, and by the way, there's always things that need to be fixed. There's always things that need to be changed. But literally, the common denominator of all of this is sin is at the bottom of all of our problems. There's no question about that. Uh, it's interesting that we talk about peace in this uh, verse 9 is the verse we're going to work on today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. As we talk about peace, it literally is a theme that dominates the Bible. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, peace was obviously there. It was beautiful. It was, it was actually sanctimonious by the sense of its very presence. Peace was there, not even having to state it. That's a condition who God, in, from the beginning to the very end, eternally, you get into Revelation chapter 22, uh, there will be an eternal state of peace. And everything in between that is literally in a sense of interruption that happened in the Garden of Eden as man, uh, or Adam and Eve sinned. Sinned brought a, a disjointed or an a interruption to what God would have preferred to have peace. It's actually stated that God is peace. And as we've said already, that it literally dominates the Bible. As man sinned, with the peace being interrupted, the next phase that literally was described for us is when Jesus came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. And the whole focus of that was for the God of peace to send the Prince of Peace to literally give us the, 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 the spirit of peace. And that, if you will, just that short little condensed section is really what God was trying to do to regain what had been lost. He's even described for us as being our peace. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 in a moment. But for right now, there's about 400 references in the Bible to peace. 400. So it's certainly something that is very important to God. So why is there no peace today? It's not with a lot of... You don't have to do a lot of studying. You don't have to listen to a lot of the news. You don't have to read a lot of newspapers, a lot of radio, internet, whatever it is. You will find an awful lot of absence of peace. So what is peace? And why is peace absent, if you will? Well, two particular, excuse me, because uh, literally the two things that would cause the sense of God not being present, if you will, I'm saying it that way to follow that reason of thought, is the opposition from Satan and the disobedience of man. Those two things really 
concentrated to showing that we are literally, we being those that are, are trapped by this whole system, the whole conflict, as at war with God. It, it's, it literally is that simple. And sometimes we see as peace, uh, this, may, this may strike you as being a little bit odd, but peace is not the absence of conflict. Let me say that one more time. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Sounds like a pretty good definition to me because we've got a lot of conflict going on. Yeah, but see, I want you to get in your mind today that peace is much more than the absence of something. Let me give you an example. If peace was the absence of conflict, then a cemetery would be a great model for peace. But it's not. Anyone that was doubting right now, that's not a model for peace. Peace is much more than the absence. I want you to think today the, that peace is the presence of something. There's the presence that replaces. In other words, uh, think about it this way. The difference between a truce and peace is pretty profound. When we think about the word truce, it would be maybe words like ceasefire. What is a ceasefire? Has anything changed? No, they've taken time to reload. There's just a time frame, and there's some sense of this. Now, think of this as well. Sometimes we think that peace, if we could just separate the people, we would have peace. We haven't solved anything. That's not what peace is a solving. Pure peace is a solved scenario. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of something else. It follows along some of the things. If we just get rid of a bad habit with nothing to exchange it with, Really haven't gained anything, have we? And, and if we don't bring the parties together and resolving what brought it to, to place in the first time, we really haven't solved anything. Uh, how many peace treaties have failed or have been broken? This is easy. All of them. Every one. If there's one in effect today, it will probably be broken as well. The interesting part is this text we hear today, and some of the things that I'm hearing about our world that's gone upside down the last several months what can I do? This is something we can do. This, this text, this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 particularly, blessed are the peacemakers, is not given to ambassadors. It's not given to secretary of states. It's not given to politicians. It's not given to presidents. It's not given to anybody in the sense of a place of hierarchy that their job and position is to bring people. No, no. This is about us if we've trusted Christ as Savior. Period. We are peacemakers. It's okay. I see if that, yes, that's exactly what this is addressed to. Well, you mean me? Yes, because literally the only way to have peace is through reconciliation or being, having made peace with God. If you have not made peace with God, there is no way that you can be a peacemaker. It's impossible because literally that conflict starts with between a person and God himself. Man has no peace within himself. Peace is not just stopping the war. It is creating righteousness that brings the two parties together in love. Let's go to uh, James chapter 3 for a moment. And, and as you're doing that, have you heard the, the Jewish saying, uh, Shalom? What does that mean? We have taken it over the course of years to mean it's peace, but it's, it's literally uh, described as being God's highest good for you. 
Isn't that much more beautiful? It's more beautiful. It's not just peace. The a- and again, not the absence of conflict. You see, I've even looked at it that way. Peace to me is, I just, I, just, I just don't want no conflict. I don't want any problems, right? I just want peace. No, no, no. It's much bigger than that. Shalom is literally to bring God's best, his, the bestest best, doesn't even sound right, to you. And that's the fullness when you think of God's peace for us. It is a creative force for goodness. If you think of peace, I want you to, a creative force for goodness. It's an aggressive good. It's not a vacuum. That's sometimes a truce is literally, uh, uh, you have two sides and we have a ceasefire, we have a truce. All that is is a gap in time. No one's changed anything. And like I said, most of the time it's just a reloading phase. Okay, let's get ready. Let's really get ready now. Peace is not any part of that. The other thing that comes uh, with peace, uh, or is absolutely essential, is peace is a child of truth. Let me say that one more time. Peace is the child of truth. If you do not have truth, you cannot have peace. I think that's one of the reasons that we're struggling so much in a world today is we've thrown out, I say this, uh, if there's anything that I'll be known for of boring you to death is the fact that absolute truth is still the most absolutely important thing that we can possibly know. Truth for all people in all places for all times. And we have phased away from that. And when you do that, then all of a sudden we have somebody else's truth contending with someone else's truth to really be truth. And there's no way you can do that if it's not based foundationally on God's word. And when you have the lack of truth, conflict is an absolute necessity because of its very inference of not having truth there. When you have absolute truth, guess what? It meets that at the middle and says, I have got to make a decision where I am in response to truth. Peace is a child of truth. Where did I tell you to go? No, we didn't go there. James. James. Let's, let's try that. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I want you to see what comes with, or in this instance, before peace. Now, as you're, think, as you're going there to James chapter 3, I haven't told you which verse because you would read it before I'd want you to. Okay, that's, <laughs> I'm trying to set this up for you a little bit. But now let's think about the Beatitudes or the attributes that Jesus has wanted to infiltrate out the lives of those that he spoke with and as well as for us today. First place was humility. What a great place to start with God. That's the only place to start with God, quite honestly, is say things as they are and let God do the work. And then the second one was to be mournful or extremely sorry for the sinful condition we found ourselves in. So humbly is to approach God on our knees saying, I have nothing to fix my problem. And my problem is sin. I can't fix it by myself. And then to really be sorrowful. And then thirdly, it was to be meek. In other words, trusting God when you have the ability to maybe even do something of your own will and nature to let God take care of it. He has you right where he wants you. And then fourthly, what was it? Anybody remember? Yes. To be hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Now, I'm not talking about just being, having a little snack time. I'm talking about literally searching and seeking righteousness just as if you were starving to death. And as a result of that, guess what happens? Then he's, in, he's asking us to be pure in heart. 
And when you're pure in heart, guess what comes next? A peacemaker. Because watch in James chapter 3. Now turn to verse 17. Knowing how Jesus has set this whole thing up. Whoops, I'm still in Peter. Let me get to James. Okay, I will get there. <laughs> James chapter 3 and verse 17. Watch carefully. James chapter 3 verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Isn't that beautiful? Peace just doesn't come out of the blue. It comes out of a pure heart. It comes out of purity. It comes out of holiness. It comes out of righteousness. In fact, turn back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's take a quick peek here. And verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness. Do you see they're linked together? Uh, holiness or righteousness, purity, truth. It's a, peace is a result of those things. To turn back to Psalm chapter 85, all the way back in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 85, verse 10. Again, given to us. Psalm 85, 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Do you think the Bible's got something to say here? Very closely related when you think of the sense of righteousness and peace. Now, as we think about Jesus even going down the line a bit, would, would you say that Jesus was a peacemaker? It's not a trick question. Yes, he was. <laughs> very, very, he was very much like that. He was a peacemaker. And yet there's some words we're going to go and watch right now, and you're going to say, that doesn't really sound like a peacemaker. So let's take a look. Let's follow through some of this, that peace oftentimes... Now, see, when we think of a peacemaker, what do you think? Well, somebody that's really, you know... Don't say very much. Soft, calm. Don't say anything that would agitate either party. And just kind of bring it all together in this warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not Jesus. That is not Jesus. Because the first and foremost, we know that truth was what set him totally apart from anyone else. And he said, the truth shall set you free. Free to have peace. So let's watch now for a moment. I think if we go to Matthew chapter 10. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. And he says something that seems a little bit, wow, right? Matthew chapter 10, and we'll start, we're, we're just going to dive into verse 34. Um, at, at your own leisure, maybe read uh, previous to that and get your context. But watch, he's, he's, he's condensing this. He says in verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. What? What? I thought, yeah, I set you up. Did you say I set you up? But literally, peace is not necessarily what happens at any given moment. Peace is the end result of getting literally the confrontation that needs to take place. Because if you have two warring parties, it's obvious that both of them are not on the side of truth. Is that not correct? Because you can't have two truths. See, that's what's wrong with our nation. We think there can be. And until we get that right... We can't be right. So he says, he continues, he says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. What the world? 
This is Jesus saying this? Yes. Truth not only sets us free, but truth also separates. There's a point of which we must come to a commonality. Of, if that's true, what am I going to do about it? And what did we say was the enemy of peace? What literally is at the, the menace to peace? Why is there no peace in this world? Sin. Three-letter word. Behind every conflict, behind all of the war, is literally an internal problem that Jesus was addressing in Matthew chapter 5, that is sin. That's the menace, the menace to peace. Look at uh, Luke chapter 12. Turn over to just the, uh, the next gospel. Luke, I'm sorry, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Luke 12 and 51. 1251. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. It's the corollary text of what we just read is the sense of there's going to be divisions within families because if it's about truth and it's about Jesus, and there is a only one way to fix the sin problem. There's only one way, and that's to accept by faith the grace that Jesus Christ died for sacrificially to give us victory over Sin, which then puts us at peace with God. Now, in fact, to find that, let's go to Romans chapter 5. I mean, we might have even looked at this last week. Romans chapter 5, watch carefully. Now, this is the beginning point of all peace. If you've not done this personally, then you cannot and will not witness peace on an individual level. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified, that is to be declared not guilty. That's, that's what I want on my theme at the end. Uh, I, I want to be declared not guilty. Are, are those of you kind of wondering what we had going on? This was a, this was a true seekers thing. It's totally switching for those that aren't, are not here. On the board, we have a, a line, and it's question one, and it has a, a line that's probably about six inches long. Over there, there was three options that were given to the group that was in, in question, and A was a line that's probably twice as long as uh, number one, and the B would be the same apparent length, and C is about a third of the length. The question was, is literally on a group setting in the 1950s, it was sought to see how important others' viewpoints could sway your own. Now, this is not particularly hard. It wouldn't seem as such. But on this setup, there was a professor that had infiltrated the group, which they were all seen as participants, and he asked them to point out upon questioning which one of these line lengths would be the closest to number one. Now, what they didn't know was there was only one person that had not been, shall we say, told to pick the right answer. The rest of the contestants, or at least shown as that, were given to say to choose A, which would be twice the length. And then the last person to respond would have been this person that literally is just looking at the evidence and making a call based upon that. But he has just heard from 10 to 15 other people that have said that A is the right answer to B. And so what would go through your mind? I must have got the wrong question. I must not be hearing properly. And do you know that 70, this is, this is crazy, 75% of the respondents chose the same wrong answer. And you say we're not like sheep? Isn't that crazy? That was done in the 50s. 
Now it got, but what got more interesting, and this is what really this is about, is we're, as we as Christians today are living in a world that's flipped inside out and gone crazy, what we say literally can have a lot to do with how people respond. We were getting into this intrusive because that young, young people's group that, um, what are we, like teenagers to 30. And I want them to be involved in life. What are you, when are you guys going to step in? What's going to happen? What, what really is driving your world? Now, the same group, the same professor that was doing this testing in the 50s, what he did next was to take one other person was instructed to give the other wrong answer. Just one. In other words, think of it. In this room here, all of you would be instructed to choose the wrong answer that's on the other side of the spectrum. B being the right answer was not chosen by the group, which is the right answer. I'm again to say, truth is truth. Truth is always truth. Truth always will be truth. Am I pressing on that? Yes, I am. But there was one, one of you, Paul would be that person. He would have been chosen to literally say the other wrong answer. And then the one participant that's in the room that has not been coached, that is literally asked to respond by giving you the length of line that most corresponds to the question, do you know that then from 75%, it went all the way down to 5%. Just being able to see another perspective. Now, we may be totally outclassed in the sense of numbers, which God's not impressed with democracy. Remember when he sent 12 tribes, 12 12 individuals from the 12 tribes of Israel to go to the promised land that he alone had said, that is the land I give to you, I promise to give it to you, and when I promise, I never go back on my promises. And they still wanted to go look. All right, go look. And they come back, and the vote was 10 to 2. I'll tell you what, in a poll United States, that's a landslide, big time, slam dunk, we win. And God said, no, it's wrong. It's not the truth. That's what should really drive us. But it's so interesting when even one person was able to show a different answer, then they got it right. That's where we come in as peacemakers, literally giving the truth, opening it up so people have the ability to see the other side. As we start to dissect what's behind these conflicts, at least nationally today, most of them and almost all of them are built on untruth and lies. I'm going to say this. Black Lives Matter, its founders, are totally based on lies. Do black lives matter? Of course they do. All lives matter. But if they were really serious, then how about the thousand black babies that are aborted every day? Is that not a life that we should be contending with? See, it's not that. It's energy that's been absorbed to try to take us to a level that is on something to to totally move to anarchism. That is exactly what conflict and lack of peace is. This is not new. This is not new. It's the same old stuff. Sin is at the basis. That's what it's about. Now, I have no idea where I dropped you. We got off on this. What was I going to write on the board? We're going to... What did I? <laughs> oh, yeah, Romans, Romans. I think we were in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The sense of being justified by faith, being declared not guilty. At the end of my life, on my slate, when I'm done, I want it to say, not guilty, paid in full. Now, let's watch it, keeping that in mind. In chapter 5, verse 1, we're back to where we were going. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace, watch, 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first time now that you literally will ever have the opportunity to say, I have peace with God, is when you've accepted Christ as your Savior through faith, accepting His grace and the sacrifice that He so amazingly paid for us. Now you have peace with God. Until you do that, there's no peace with God. Can't have it. You certainly cannot be. And how, how effective would you be as a peacemaker if you don't have peace yourself? The answer is you can't. It's impossible to do that. It's impossible. Opens up very clearly the importance of that. Excuse me? What's that? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. Um, let's go to, uh, back to Jeremiah for a moment. Seeing the, what hinders peace. We'll look, uh, and, and it's pretty clear, we've already spoken of it, but let's let the scripture do the talking and the walking. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Uh, Jeremiah lived in a time frame. He was a prophet during a very a, a, a difficult time, obviously. Uh, an enemy nation was going to devour and to take over God's chosen people, and it was hard for them to see that. But literally, verse 9, chapter 17 of Jeremiah describes uh, the, real, the, the, the root of the challenge, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Turn to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48. And let's look at uh, chapter 48. Isaiah 48 and verse 22. Isaiah 48, 22. 48, 22. 48, 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Short verse. Did, did anyone not get that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jeremiah just told us that the root of the problem is the heart. It's deceitful above all things. And then Isaiah says there's no peace unto the wicked. Uh, chapter 57, same book, uh, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Turn over with me to Mark. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, Jesus again teaching and speaking. Mark chapter 7, and let's look at verse 20. He is going to unfold uh, the importance of the heart. Mark chapter 7, and how he got into all of this was through the Pharisees' traditions. They were all about externalism, and Jesus, as usual, was entering in. Now, by the way, speaking of conflict and peace, how did he treat the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders? How did he, was he, he? Blunt is a good word, isn't it? Yeah. He came right at them with what? Now, this is, again, I, I want to make sure we understand this. Peace cannot be peace without truth. Even though there may be a confrontation or a conflict in, initially, the only way to know real truth, I'm sorry, real peace at the end is to address it with truth. There's no truth. There's no peace. You can write that down. There it cannot be peace without truth. So here he comes in verse 20 and he says, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile the man. Speaking again to the sin problem. Now, let's go back to James. I think we stopped in verse 17, but let's go back. I want you to look at another verse. Same book, James chapter 3. James chapter 3, but this time we're going to go on to verse 18. James chapter 3, and let's 
look again at verse 17, but watch it as it unfolds for us. The source of peace. James chapter 3, verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above first is pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, that's a description of wisdom. And then he goes on to say, verse 18, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That verse is monstrous. To think of this, peace must come out of the fruit of righteousness. Think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. Against such there is no law. Peace is in a perfect position, isn't it? But it's not just something you pluck out of the air and you just say the right things. Now, let's just keep the peace here now. Let's just, have you heard that? Let's just keep the peace. And that's, by the way, it's not just at nations. We've been talking more of a larger scale, but literally when there's no peace in a family, the family breakdowns are taking place. And I heard, this is so crazy today. If you don't think there's statistics that matter and where our world is today, do you know that 85% of those in prison came from a fatherless home? I'm going to say that one more time. That is catastrophic. And then we wonder why we're in the state we're in. If there was ever a time for men to raise up and take charge of their families, it would be this. Did you hear it? 85% of those incarcerated came from a fatherless home. Wow. But that's exactly what would happen when you see Satan. Remember? Peace, opposition from Satan, and disobedience of, of humans. Well, really, literally, think of how God put this whole thing together. He started with the family. A husband and a wife, a man and a woman came together to be one, to be the foundation of a family. And Satan has continued to chink away and to carve away and to obliterate all of that that has to do with God's initial unit of stability and of peace. Think of that even after sin just entered. I guarantee you that house between Adam and Eve. I do not want to know it. I do not know what it looked like in the Garden of Eden, but I'm convinced on the night they sinned, there was not peace and harmony. Eve, you, Adam, right? And from that moment on, it was just on like that, wasn't it? We, we think of the feminist movements, and now they even have something called the womanizing movement. And we feel, this, we feel the sense of women need to be treated fairly. They need to be treated with a great deal of protection. Yes, that's the man's job. But anytime we see the man feminized, the unit, the family unit has been, again, just chinked and destroyed at another level. It is not what God wants, and therefore we will have conflicts within the home. See, we're not talking just about, by the way, nations are made up of families. When the family's not good, the nation's not doing well. It, it, won't, it can't work that way. The church is even the same thing has happened. All of the things that got instituted, there is levels of conflict within them because of not dealing with truth from God's word. If you do not administer truth, you can't possibly have peace. And again, it's not the absence of conflict. Do you see, do you see we've even been almost uh, uh, neutralized in that very sense to think peace is much more than just the absence of something. 
It's the presence of God's righteousness and holiness and truth. If that's not there, it's not real truth. Have I said that enough? Should I stop and move on now? Let's keep moving then. Let's keep moving. Let's go to Paul. Now, Paul's another one that we would have to... Oh, look at that. One more, one more on Jesus. Uh, I, I just find this interesting because he ultimately did... He did accomplish peace, but it took him a few years to do it. Initially, there was... Look at... Look at what did I tell you? Luke chapter 23. Let's go there. Luke chapter 23, verse 5. My mind is just buzzing with stuff right now. Luke chapter 23 and verse 5. Watch what it said of Jesus. We'll start in verse 1, though. Uh, Christ is coming now. It's, it's leading down to the end. And he's before Pilate. And of the whole multitude, just as uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 1, the whole multitude of them arose and led him on to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, all of that, that's false. That is totally falsehood. But why did they say it? Because of who they're talking to. If they, could, if they could see that Jesus, if they could prove the point that Jesus literally was against the Roman government, that's one quick way to get this guy out of business. Okay, let's keep going. And Pilate asked them, asked him, sayest, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they, watch verse 5, they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, is that correct? He stirred up the people? Yes! He absolutely did, because he presented truth, and they had to react to it. When you, when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone that doesn't like to hear that, is not impressed with that, guess what happens? There's a conflict. There's a, there's, a, there's a difference of opinion. There's, there is initially conflict. But that's literally, why is it called the gospel of peace? That's what's really cool in the Bible. The gospel is called the gospel of peace. Why? Because ultimately, when you accept it, when you accept what Christ accomplished, it fixes it all. And at the end, he is. Well, in fact, now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, I think would be an appropriate time to go there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. Watch what's said of Jesus. Start in verse 13, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometime were far off, far off from what? Far off from God, are made nigh or close by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Isn't that beautiful? It's literally like there was a, it was a, there was a, um, a man and woman, a family. It was, there was a, a, man, a husband and a wife, and they were fighting, and the conflict was intense. And they had a little four-year-old boy. And he was crying, and he was just distraught by this whole thing. And he, what he was doing is he was pulling his daddy's arm, and he grabbed and reached his mommy's arm, and he's fighting to get them to come together. And finally got him. See, see he got it. What, he, what was he trying to do? He was trying to get peace between them. But literally, if you think about it, that's an analogy we can use. Now, break out of that and go to what happened between when Adam and Eve sinned and God and us. We were broken. That fellowship was broken. And you know what? Jesus brought the hands of God together with the hands of man by his own sinless, perfect, loving sacrifice. And he paid for it. And that, my friends, is peace. That's true, lasting, forever, eternal peace that can never be broken. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus accomplished it. He was all over it. He made it happen. I think of Paul. Now, there's another man. Wow, talk about a change. 
Let's go to Acts chapter 24. I think I left you in Ephesians. Let's go to Acts chapter 24. Let's watch some of the things that happened as him being a result of engaging the gospel. Acts chapter 24 and verse 5. He, we maybe start in verse 1, it'll give us context. Uh, Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. Literally, this is a trial. This is uh, that he's being accused before Felix, and now he is going to be taken to task by those. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. This is called buttering up the judge. Okay? A lawyer is talented in that area. We accept it also in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee. Do you see this? This is just like puffing up Mr. Felix. I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency just a few words. Now watch verse 5. We have found this man a pestilent fellow. Now, remember what they said about Jesus? He stirreth up the people. What did they say about Paul? He's a pestilent fellow. What, what, if something, Paul, if somebody said you were a pestilent fellow, what would you think that was? What would you say, that, what would you say about Paul? What would he be? A, a problem, a, a troublemaker. Well, that is true. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Pestilent. That would be something that was very engaging. Something that was got right in the middle of you if you weren't twisted a little bit and tried to make you think about things that were really important. Not just covering things up, but getting right to the middle of it. And he did that very effectively, didn't he? Turn to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three and verse twelve. Second Timothy chapter three and verse twelve. <clears throat> there's something here that I want you to see because don't, did you guys read it? Stop. Don't read it. Just wait, wait for just a second. Those of you that have listened now for just consistently week after week after week that have been here in the regards to the Beatitudes, I think we're on number seven. If I'm not, I'm off by just one. Okay. So here we are and you've walked and they're very, they're like climbing a ladder. They really literally are. You can't just pop in the middle and pick one. Oh no, 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 no. This is not a buffet. It starts at number one. And then you move up the ladder. You don't get to be a peacemaker until you're pure of heart. You don't get to be pure of heart until you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And it all goes back to the fact whose heart or whose is your heart belong to? To you or to God? And if you haven't done that, then the attitudes, you, you've got to start at square one. Do you know what the next week what next week's is? Persecution. And it got quiet in the room because I'm going to tell you something. If you're truly a peacemaker, listen carefully. And we found that peacemakers come from not just the absence of conflict. They come from purity. God is peace. We also have found that it's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of righteousness, holiness, truth. If that's there, then you are a peacemaker. And if you're a peacemaker, you will be persecuted. Let's, what, let's read what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse, and this is what you're saying. You know, I never really saw myself as being a peacemaker. I don't think I need to be one. <laughs> let's, let's dial into uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Here we go. You've probably already read it now. If we suffer, 
No, I'm in. I'm in the wrong chat. I'm in the wrong. That's, that's verse 12. Let's, let me get there. I'll get there. There we go. Verse 12, chapter 3, second Timothy. Here we go. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do you want me to write it down because it wasn't clear enough? No, that was a... No, it's right there, isn't it? And, and you say, wait, wait, wait a minute. I do not... No, I didn't sign up for that part of it. There's no signing up. And think with me clearly today. I will have to say this. If you were going to act as a peacemaker today in the United States, stating the truth, the gospel of peace, That doesn't necessarily mean that you will be received in a way that is just congenial, even though it's truth. Because, see, we've slipped away from truth. And wait, what's the reason for the lack of peace? The opposition of Satan and the disobedience of humans. It's a, it, it has to be acceptance of truth. Truth being in the Bible. Somebody, and and I, I'll constantly go, you know, it doesn't matter what I say. It does not matter what, what I say. It does not matter what you say. What does the Bible say? And then for someone that does not accept the Bible as truth, then their first job is you need to prove that the Bible is wrong. Don't talk to me anymore. You get on your knees and you start working your way through this and you prove to yourself, not to me, not to anyone, you prove that this is not true. C.S. Lewis tried it. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant scholar. And he set out to write a book literally to prove that the Bible was totally false. Didn't take him too long and he... He said, I came kicking and screaming back to God because it was true. And I challenge anyone. Don't, don't let somebody else make that decision for you. Don't let an atheist that prepares whatever it is for him or her that they don't want anything to do with God. Now, that's, again, I find this so remarkably interesting. If you have an atheist and not someone that knows there is no God, if they know there's no God, then why would you spend a second of your life trying to convince anyone else that there is not a God. Why would it bother? Why would it matter to you? And yet those, those atheists that are rabid, they will spend almost all of a consumed lifetime trying to, to discredit and to discount those that believe there's a God. Why would you do that? I can tell you why. Because they know there's a God. God placed within every one of us a sense of eternity, a sense of, of himness. Ecclesiastes, it talks about that. This isn't just a game. It's a real deal. It's a real deal. Now, Paul, we know him. He went from a persecutor to a persecuted. Peacemaker doesn't necessarily make life easy, but it makes it fulfilling. What's the source of peace? Let's take our Bibles, and you're in 2 Timothy. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We're on the downhill slide now. We've broken over the midpoint, and you're saying, oh, my goodness. No, it's, it's further than that. It's further than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Watch this. This is pretty good. I, I like this a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I've used it uh, as the first part of this verse, but look, look at how it flows together. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Isn't that beautiful? That verse fits our country wide and big and as many spaces you can fill it. My God's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. If we have any peace, we don't have enough of God. Isn't that true? Romans chapter 15. Just turn back to Romans chapter 15 and verse 33 as well. Romans 15 verse 33. 
Paul is kind of getting in the mood of kind of signing off, if you will. And he says, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's a gift from God. Did we actually go to Ephesians 2.14? Did we go there? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yes, we did. That he is our peace. Think of this for a moment. I'm going to tell a quick story. I read this. uh, There was a a man by the name of, uh, I didn't read his book, but Don Don Richardson, he wrote a book called The Peace Child. P-E-A-C-E, just like we're reading, Peace Child. And in it, he uh, and his family were missionaries to Aaron Jawa, and there was a tribe in there called the Sa... I, I, it's S-A-W-I. Sa-I is what I know it as, and I might not be right, but anyway, he was ministering to these people and trying to come up with a conclusion or an analogy to be able to, to show them what God had done for them. You know, not knowing the language exact, you know, and that would be a difficult thing. How do you show Jesus to people? I mean, it's, it's, how do we do it today? It's a little different. The message is the same, but the way you do it, it has to be a little bit different today, isn't it? Especially with the young people that don't know the Bible. They don't know scriptures. Do you know I was listening to This is off subject. Just for a little, little parenthesis, which happens to me a lot, if you don't know me. I branch off there and go. Um, we were talking about universities. Last night I was listening to a program. And the sense of the really left viewpoint and the right or the conservative viewpoint, which to having those together usually makes for a very healthy debate. No matter what, I don't care which side you're on. It actually makes for a very healthy debate. Today, it used to be uh, like in the 80s and 90s, it was about 5 to 1 or 8 to 1, depending on who you're listening to, of the leftists to the right. Okay. Do you know what it is today? It's 50 to 1. That's across the whole university system. Now, that's not healthy no matter what side you're on. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, now coming back to where we were at, talking about the little, this little saw-I tribe. And this man, Mr. Richardson, was trying to figure out how can I get to them to describe grace, the gift of God, what Jesus did for them. Well, as you would imagine, every place in the world is conflict. You know, there's no place that's absent from conflict. Peace is absent, isn't it? Somebody tried to, conf- tried to figure out how many wars there were from Christ until this would have been like the end of, the se- of our last century, 20 years ago. It was about 14,366. Whew. And yet we, haven't, we haven't stopped having them either, have we? Just continues. Well, this little tribe was having a problem with a neighboring tribe. I mean, it was contentious. It was a big, fat deal. And they were, whatever they do, you know, fighting and carrying on. There was something that had happened over the class course of a number of years, generationally, that literally this man found out about. That if one tribe would take a baby and present it to the other tribe and leave that baby there and go home. There could be no war as long as that baby lived. Now, who's going to be the person to do that? Exactly. That's why they kept warring, right? Well, he said, this Don Richardson said in the book, he said something happened. There was a man. His wife was not in favor. Because he literally ran with his, 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 it was his only boy, his only son, his infant son. And he literally ran with his wife chasing him to that tribe. And he laid the child down and left. And that was accepted as a peace. And then Mr. Richardson knew exactly how to present Jesus Christ to that people. 
Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ, God the Son, God, the God-man, literally was the envy. And you know how long he's going to live? Forever. That's what's really cool. When you're at peace with God and you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, there's no end to that. Perfect, right? And then you can be a peacemaker. And you know what persecution literally is? It means nothing. It means nothing. Because they can't take from you what God has given to you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what it's about. That's what our whole life is about, is it's in Christ. He is our peace. Where did I tell you to go? Did I even finish? I sometimes do that. You've noticed that. Roman chapter, okay. Then where did I tell Oh, we need to go to Colossians next. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. Colossians 1 verse 20. In verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Everything that was in the Father was in the Son. And verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be beings in earth, things in earth, or things in heaven. He made peace. He reconciled. When you see that word reconciliation, you know what that is? He made peace. He was a peacemaker. And literally, and Jesus walked through the earth for three years. Was everything peaceful? No. He caused conflicts. He, he used the word sword. But the point of the matter was, as a result of that, literally making people think about the things that they needed to think about, and then he proving his love, proving the fact that he was the in-between, the go-between, giving up his life, being on a cross. Now, that's about as conflictive as I can imagine. When's the last time you were told that you were going to be crucified? That's a major conflict. And yet he willingly, in fact, in Hebrews, it says he endured the cross with all joy because he knew that it would, when he said it's finished, those three words to me are just, it, it just, it will resonate for me through eternity. It is finished. When Christ spoke those last three words on the earth, sin was broken forever. And then the really good news, that's why I'm standing for you here today. If Jesus had just lied and stayed, if I could still go to his grave and I could look at that and I could say, you know what, I would not be, I would not be here today. I would not be any part of the Christianity. Because if he couldn't conquer death, that wouldn't help me out. Because that's in my future. That's in your future. If you can't conquer death, it's not going to work out. But he rose from the dead because God put his stamp of approval saying, it was finished and it is complete and it is pure, raw love expressed to join me and mankind back together. Oh, praise God. Hallelujah. If that hadn't happened, I'm out. Because then it's just another Buddha, another Muhammad. It's another whatever. All of those men that are women, for that matter, that died with a cause that couldn't whip death. If you can't whip death, I, I, well, that to me is the bottom line. And you know the really cool part is? Well, how do you know he died? See, that's what, the, that's what the cynic would say. I'd say, there's no way you can prove that. I'd say, yeah, 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 I pretty much can. Those 12 disciples, there's 12 of them. One of them, Judas, he sold his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver. And then he committed suicide. He was never one of them. In fact, Jesus said that. He went out from us because he was never of us. But the other 11, how did they die? Now, if they knew that he was a fraud, or if you knew that someone was a fraud... How do you respond? Run away. Run away. And on that night, Jesus said, you guys are going to just flee like little chickens, right? He didn't use that word, but you're going to be gone. 
and they did. What brought, and that's even, see, see, that's even more magnanimous in the sense they were fleeing like chickens, and they would have stayed that way if Jesus had not risen from the dead. But he appeared to them again. That'll do it for me. <laughs> Remember Thomas? He didn't see him. I'm not going to believe until I can see, I can feel. And he did. All of those disciples literally died a martyr's death are pretty close. And all they would have to do is say, yeah, Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. He really wasn't. He was just, he was just a guy. And we, we kind of followed him around for a while. And, you know, finally, you know, we saw it. And then that's all they would have to do. And they live. Every single one of them said, no, Jesus is the Son of God. That works for me. You're not going to die for a lie that you know is a lie. Now, if you think that it's not a lie, that's another matter. In fact, there's many people that die for lies they don't know that isn't a lie. But these would have known that he was a fraud. But he wasn't. He wasn't. He was our peace. He came in love. So who are the messengers of peace? Are they presidents, diplomats, ambassadors? If you've trusted Christ as Savior, then you move right into that position. As you're thirsting and hungering for righteousness and purity takes place in your heart, peace just actually emanates from you. And you know what? Today, I was going to say we. We need to be doing peacemaking. And you know, that's the part about me. I want to, when I'm a peacemaker, I'm just thinking there's peace right away, right? That's not what this is about. Literally, as you present the gospel of peace, you know, for instance, if the Black Lives Matter uh, founders, there's three of them, three gals, um, if, I don't know if you ever read their biographies or something, uh, very troubled, very troubled. And, and if they were here right now, they would vehemently, Apart from the Holy Spirit working very, very intimately. And by the way, Christ died for every person. He wants all to come to him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. There's no question about that. They once said all would come to repentance. But if those three gals were sitting right there, and I gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ, on their present course, they would not be peaceable. But the very essence of the gospel of peace, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to find, their, I'm going to find where they're at and I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. That Jesus is the answer and he literally can give them peace. And they don't have peace. Right? Right, they don't. They don't know God. Because they're very, they'd say that. I'm not, I'm not putting words in their mouth. And they're not alone. I'm not picking on them today, but I'm just saying that's where the instance right now where there's so much energy that is so devoted to doing something that is a total diabolical means. But Jesus Christ died for them. We are to be peacemakers. No question about it. Praise God. Excuse me? You answered a question I had because I had a pastor saying you shouldn't go to all the, the, the protests. Protests. And I said to Bill, why did he say that? I wouldn't. 
But I, I didn't understand why he said that. Because I always am the peacekeeper of my family. I have five sisters. One of us has to be out of five girls. <laughs> five girls, we need a peacemaker. No yeah. question about it. And, 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 <laughs> How does that work out every time? Not probably so well. Right? No. I exactly. Get exactly. Front and I take the front and he says, hang up and I can't. I just yep. listen and I say, I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> And I pray for them. Right. And, and there are places to be a peacemaker. Right. And there are places not to be a peacemaker in the sense of actual physical location. Right. And he okay. said not to do that. And I wanted to know why. And I was saying, where does it say it in the Bible? And then I come here you start. Today. You start with prayer. Yeah. Number one, God, where do you want me now? Where do you want me right now? We talked about it in True Seekers on, uh, on Thursday night. As there's, I said, what if there was a group of a 500 and it got up to 1,000? Because you may as well, if you've got numbers, you just well make it larger. And there's 1,000 people, and we were just walking down Washington, D.C., just, down, just kind of looking things over. And all of a sudden, here's a swarm of people, and their job is they're going to go tear down a statue. And we're just kind of, you know, kind of just poof right along with them, right? You know, the crowd almost takes you in. I said, what are you guys going to do? Boy, did it get quiet, and they're looking, you know, um, uh, now, I will say this, when you come to the bottom line of that, that group had already had enough emotion in it to get there, okay? The chances of you are a small group of us. We had 10 on that night, on Thursday night, and there's 1,000. We made it this group of 1,000. How much effect would 10 people have in that level? Now, that's why it's gone here on the board with those three lines. My point was, even just having an alternative viewpoint will help those that are just along for the ride. If to think of this, how many leaders does it take for a thousand people to show up to do something? Very few. There's a lot of them with just energy and there's something that has connected them that brings them along. That's where us as peacemakers are so vitally important is to give the message of truth. Now whether it's that place or not, see the kids said, you know, probably all we'd accomplish here is get beat up. And I love my kids. They just, you know, they just cut it right there. I'm gonna have to say the same thing. Probably not the best place. But now, if there's someone that you can dialogue with individually, I think it's great. But again, I, as, uh, oh, tell me your name, please. Your name. I, Gail, there we go. I always want to call you Gladys. Gail, Gail read that little thing to us. Right now, God has you where you're supposed to be at this very second. And when we're praying, knowing the Holy Spirit lives within us as Christians, he does indwell us. That's not a question then he is going to direct us where we need to be and who we need to be with. And if that needs to be in a protest, and I'm talking a peaceable one, if there's violence there, you have no business being there. That is a law-breaking, anarchy kind of a mission that has no place in this country. Our Constitution guarantees against it, and it will, by God's very grace, will be taken care of. However, if there is a peaceful, and there's nothing wrong, that's a great thing about America. There's a great thing. Great thing about America is you can literally protest in the sense peaceably, making your statement known. That's wonderful. You can't do that in every country in the world. No, totally, totally wrong. That is not protest. That is rioting and horribly out of line lawlessness. You can't call it anything else. And I will call it to their face. That needs to be absolutely prosecuted. But the point of the matter is, is that got there because of the energy of sound, something that was wrong. That's the problem. Yes. And then it goes too far because, once again, the human heart is desperately wicked and goes way outside of bounds. But now whether God wants you to be there as people are giving their opinions and to be able to go one-on-one 
I think that's very, very good stuff. But be prepared. You may not be accepted. It's called persecution. But it's okay, because they can't take from you what God gave you. And it's always the right time to do the right thing. We got a big job, don't we? But God's the one that's empowering us. He's the one that gives it to us. I've got a couple of verses I think I'm going to just close with. Let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Oh, there's one thing, though. Stop for just a second. Did you see what the merits of a peacemaker were? Did you see what God promised us? That when blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, they shall be children or sons of God. That word there is literally the sons in the sense it's not just to have just being a kid of God. It would be the dignity, the admiration, all the things in the sense of being the very essence of the son of God. It's, it's a high-ranking position, not because of who you are, but literally you have proven the fact that you are God's. Not, not, not that you're God. I'm talking that you're God's children, you're God's sons. That sounded weird if you just tapped into that one. I'm not talking about you being a God. No, stop, stop. That's a timeout. None of that, right? But the fact that you're God's sons, that is a huge, huge deal. It is monstrous in the sense of just the very essence of all that that means. And it all comes from being a peacemaker, being actively involved in those around us. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 26 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. Isaiah 26 verse 3. <clears throat> Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That verse you need to know. You want peace? When you trust in God, it's yours. If you don't have peace, you haven't been trusting in God. Let's finish with, uh, with Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And let's take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, again, those of you that know how Paul wrote... He would, he would kind of want to make sure that your thinking's right so that your acting would be right. He wants you to, live, to, to, believe, to believe right so that you live right. And in Ephesians, just like a lot of the other epistles, he spends the first half of the book telling you what you need to get right in your head. Get your head thinking right. It was just like, if you don't know how to make the right decision, why would we really want to talk about the rubber meeting the road? Let's get the inside right. And then in chapter 4, after laying this all out, then there's this division, and he says, now, now that you're thinking right, let's talk about living right. And here we go, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. That's kind of like, get it on, people. Verse 2, with all lowliness... And me, does this sound like Jesus talking right now? With all lowliness, that would be humbleness and meekness, power under control, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? That just ties it all together. That's like putting a bow around it and said, There it is. There it is. There it is. And you know what will happen to you? No longer will the sense, when you're doing it that way, the sense of maybe you taking the word persecution and whatever you want to wear that, it starts to shed and to turn into nothingness when you start to really get a sense 
of what those people are missing, you don't no longer, you're not afraid of what happens to what they say about you. It's the very essence of those that have died martyrs. Lord, don't lay this to their blame. Jesus Christ said, they don't know what they're doing. And literally it's that way. With this spiritual warfare of where Satan has opposed people knowing about Christ. That is so fantastic that then all of that, you giving the peace, of, the gospel of peace, the preciousness of that is so overwhelming you can't stop doing it. And God takes care of the rest. Isn't that beautiful? All to be bound up in the unity, the bond of peace. Whoa, that's a lot in a little verse, wasn't it? Well, hopefully that it broadened your sense of what a peacemaker is. Not the absence of conflict. The presence of holiness, righteousness, and truth. If you're going to try to be a peacemaker without truth, don't bother. Drop kick. Move on. It's essential. Can't be without it. And God is the one that gives peace ultimately. Let's do our job. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for those that are so... Have been, you know, what's the word that was used of uh, what Satan did to Eve? He beguiled her. Isn't that, I think, be, he, Satan beguiled Eve to blind, literally to blind her to, to what was coming. I just, I just and I'm, I'm, I'm really right now, those three ladies, I don't even know their names yet. I'm still, I'm plugging into the biographies. I'm just plugging into what's made them tick, what's dialing them. I feel so dreadfully sorry for them right now. Absolutely. We need to make, and they don't need to have, God knows who they are. I'm just going to say the founders of BLM. And that's not Bureau of Land Management. That's what I grew up learning was Bureau of Land that's Management. What I thought it okay. was yeah, but it, Black yeah. Lives Matter. Okay, all lives matter. But, but really, literally, we need those those founders need to know Jesus Christ. And part of peacemaking is praying. If you're not a praying peacemaker, you're not going to be in the right spots. Be praying this week, particularly. Let's let's just lift them up in prayer. Let's do it right now. Father God, we think and thank you. For all that you've done for the word of God, as you've written this tremendous book, literally 66 books by 40 different people, thinking of that over the course of 1,500 years, the chances of that coinciding are zero unless you were involved. Your word is magnanimous because you are magnificent. You are awesome, Father, and today, as you've brought to us the words, you've helped us to understand just maybe a little bit more than we've done before because of the Holy Spirit working and teaching and guiding and directing. For us to see this passage of Scripture for its level that it is, to see the sequential progress of Jesus' words, and they would be the same for us today. It hasn't changed. That's the cool thing, Father, is you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ would be the same today, speaking to us, because it's an internal issue. Father, I pray for hearts and lives across this nation that have been torn from the destruction of institutions that you raised up so many people are torn and worn down because of the disruption and destruction of the family unit father you were the instigator of that you were the one that built it you know the sanctity of it i would ask father that men would rise today in responsibility i would ask you we would pray for the wives and women that are involved father that you would touch them and their minds and give them everything they need to be the greatest mother of a family. Father, I think of those 
children that are within that in broken homes. I'd ask, Father, that you would step in, that you would be what they're missing. Father, particularly right now, I'd like to pray for those three founding women of Black Lives Matter. How they got together and all of those consequential issues and circumstances, Father, I don't know much about, but I know this much. I know they need you. I know that Jesus Christ died for every one of them. And Father, in their position where they are right now, you know their hearts. The Holy Spirit knows very intimately where they suffer, where they're struggling. And I would ask, Father, that we as a people here today and continuing forward would pray for their salvation. We would pray, Father, for all of those in this nation that have been torn by whatever it is, the pain and the anguish and the suffering that have made them who they are. All of those things can be eroded, can be torn down as Jesus Christ can become their peace as well, joining you and them together. That's what Jesus Christ died for. And to think, Father, that we have been called to be peacemakers. That's to present the truth, the gospel of peace, irregardless of consequence, Father. We know that we are in your hand as well. We lift them up. We trust them to you. Father, even this week, you're going to have us many miles apart from one another, those that are gathered in this room. Father, take us where you want us. Help us to say what you want us to say and be what you want us to be. May we trust in you fully and completely. May our faith lie at the feet of Jesus Christ. Give us more faith, Father. Give us whatever it is that we need to be more like Christ. For God saved us to conform us to the image of his Son, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We are truly blessed to live in a country where we have been able to have the opportunity to learn about the gospel of peace. Father, we pray that as days go by, that you would be glorified and that we would be more and more like Jesus Christ, for it is our good when we turn out to be more like him. Father, thank you for these that have gathered today. I ask that you would encourage them, give them everything they need to be more and more and more, day by day, hour by hour, walking a walk that brings them closer to yourself. Father, now these moments, we thank you for them. Our future is with you because of what Christ accomplished. He is our peace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.